Welcome to another edition of the Providence Magazine Foreign Policy Provcast. For this edition, I am your host. I am Mark Levecki. I am the editor-at-large for Providence Magazine. And I am here with Colonel Doug Mastriano. Doug is a frequent contributor to Prov Magazine. If you haven't checked out his stuff, check it out on our page. This is a uh, something of a forward-deployed edition of the Provcast, as we are abroad in France, sitting in a farmhouse in Grand Pré, and we are following in the footsteps of Alvin York, who 100 years ago this week did his uh, heroic exploits in the Battle of the Meuse-Argonne. And Doug is an excellent person to be talking about all this with, because Doug is the author of a pair of books. Uh, the first is Alvin York, A New Biography, which is about Alvin York, his life, and uh, his work. And the second is called Thunder in the Argonne, and it is about the larger campaign. Doug, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mark. Ah, it's great to have you. Uh, but first, before we get into all the rest of this stuff, uh, as I said, we're sitting here in a French farmhouse, a pension, bed and breakfast uh, in the middle of the French countryside, and you actually have a personal connection with this place. What is that? Hey, Grand Prix in 1918 was liberated by the 78th Division, and one of the young privates there was a private Ronaldo, and he's my great-great-uncle. So he was part of the, uh, the operation to make this a liberated town again and get drive the Germans out, and it worked. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, why are we here on Monday, uh, which... Uh, I, Give you the date. Monday was October the eighth, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, One hundred years to the day uh, that uh, an incredible uh, combat action took place. Uh, what happened on October the eighth? It was a fantastic morning. I mean, we were out there at six o'clock in the morning. It was pitch black outside. Some of us had lamps on or used our iPhone lights. And we were retracing Alvin York's steps at the direct time and location and day 100 years before Alvin York attacked into the Argonne Forest. For him, it was not a fantastic morning, nor for many, many thousands of soldiers uh, fighting that day. It, 100 years ago that day, the American army attacked into the Argonne Forest to drive the Germans out. And it's kind of an elaborate story. I'll just cut it down. There was a pocket of less than 700 Americans trapped, trapped for five days behind enemy lines called the Lost Battalion. And four days of frontal attacks by the Army didn't work. On the fifth day, they sent around the 82nd Division, which included Alvin York. And, and in the end, the 82nd Division was able to break a hole in the line and force the Germans out of the Argonne. A very strategic move. But it all pivoted upon one man's initiative, Alvin York. Fantastic. Now, obviously, October the 8th, a few days ago for us, didn't just happen. It was years in the planning in some ways. What is your, I, I mentioned a second ago that you've got a biography out on Alvin York. Uh but even leading up to that biography, uh, you're uh, the head of something called the Alvin York Discovery Expedition. What is that? How did you get involved? Uh, and then in a moment, I'm going to ask you why it's important, but just what is that? Yeah, so the Sergeant York Discovery Expedition was a team that we put together back in the early 2000s to try to locate where Alvin York fought, where the German machine gun positions were located, and what happened out in the Argonne Forest. And we had a large team. Sometimes we'd have up to 50 people out there working and, and with metal detectors and, and doing a dig. And it spread across about 100 days over several years, mostly weekends and holidays. And then in the end, we found the artifacts and the French and American authorities in the region and also in the States looked at our findings and endorsed it. And then the French gave us permission. To, well, I wanted to build a trail. I didn't want it to be lost again to history. Otherwise, we just right. have you know holes in the ground out in France. So the French let us build a trail, which roughly follows York's footsteps. Not precisely, but but mm -hmm. much of it is covered. 
And then at the location where the battle occurred, we also were allowed to erect two monuments. Oh, that's fantastic. And we were out there on Monday. Uh, it's a beautiful trail. Uh, it's an incredible experience to be walking in those places. Uh, and, and the story that you unfold uh, in the biography about about how you find different places and uh, how you, you, you um, pinpointed the exact locations is absolutely fascinating. You go up there and you, you read the story and you see the maps and then you see the terrain features and it seems indisputable. Um, I recognize that there is some dispute over it, uh, but to be out there um, and to see what you guys have unfolded is just incredible because it, I mean, it, it's, it's as plain as reading English, right? It's there. Um, this is where it happened. We were not, th- we were not out there alone on Monday. There was you, there was me, there was our friends, but there was another cluster of people with whom it was an incredible honor to walk around in Alvin York's footsteps with. Who were those people? We had about 15 descendants of Alvin York. The, the, the leader of the group, the, the, the head, it would be a colonel retired Gerald York, which he was Alvin York's grandson. He, he knew Alvin York personally. Alvin York passed away, I think, when he was around 18 years old. Yeah, he, he, sat a, he spent a lot of time with Alvin York. Alvin York spent his last 10 years of his life bedridden, mm-hmm. so, and so Gerald would often sit with him. So he, he has a lot of stories to tell. And uh, you, you could tell the family was really moved by walking exactly where they're their their grand their grandfather or great grandfather fought just a hundred years ago, but to the day to the minute, it was really moving and it was really stirring to see them out there and actually retracing and honoring his steps one hundred years later. No, that's right because there was there was the grandson, but there was the great grandson, and then there were several great great grandchildren. That's right. right? Uh, yeah, no, that was staggering. Uh, we're getting ahead of our story a little bit. You said retired Colonel Gerald York. Now, for those who might not know, uh, Alvin York uh, himself had difficulties reconciling uh, who he was as a Christian with the idea of military service to begin with. Generations later, he has a grandson who's a colonel. So so something's happened between Alvin York having doubts about reconciling his faith with his military service and generations of Yorks who follow, um, several of whom, were military uh, service members. So back us up. Uh, Alvin York, maybe unfortunately, is no longer a household name, not necessarily. Who was he? How did he come uh, to be in the Argonne Forest on October the 8th, 1918? Uh, And why was that problematic for him? So Alvin York was basically a farmer, fairly uneducated, growing up in the hills of Tennessee near the Kentucky border. And he was in a large family, kind of in the middle, so he was kind of lost amongst those. And the only way he could find he could get his dad's attention fully was to go hunting with his dad. And his dad was the best shot in the valley, and so his dad taught him everything he knew, and Alvin York actually ended up being a better shot in the end than his dad. And that was important. It wasn't for sport, as it is so often these days in most, most parts of the USA. It was necessary to sell the pelts of the, of the animals and also to put meat on the table. It was a big deal. Uh, they were called scratch farmers. They had bad terrain with lots of rocks in it on, on hillsides, mm-hmm. and it was, it was hard to grow corn and wheat out of those rocks, as, as they would say. And so the hunting also supplemented that. So Alvin York, but life's going okay. It's, it's, a, it's a large family. It's a happy family. Uh, William and Mary York, his parents, are strong Christians. And then while William York is shoeing a mule, they had a blacksmith shop that they also used to supplement the income. So Alvin's dad is shoeing a mule. The mule kicks him. And Alvin's dad will die from complications. And this is in 1911. 
Alvin York now finds himself in charge of the family and all the responsibilities that I just listed to, to provide for it. Impossible almost. Right. And just it just takes, it's a Herculean effort to, to make the ends meet there. And so now Alvin York is the oldest kid left at home and the two older brothers are married and moved on, have their own responsibilities. And Alvin York can't handle it. So to blow off steam, he started going up to the Kentucky border just a few miles up the road with a couple of his younger brothers and a couple of his friends. And at first he said, uh, you know, I just went up there to kind of goof off. And then I started gambling. And then a few weeks later, he started cussing and gambling. And then he's chasing girls. And then he's getting drunk. Then he spends his whole weekend inebriated. And his life is spinning out of control. He's, we call him a backslider at this point. His mom's terrified that he's going to get killed in, in the Blind Tigers. It's mm-hmm. not a place you go to watch a soccer game on the big screen TV. <laughs> right. You go there to get drunk, and, and to make matters worse, there's only a few girls there, so a, a bunch of angry guys that are drunk are chasing after just a handful of girls, and to make matters worse, all those men are not armed with knives and rifles or right. pistols, and every month somebody dies in one of these uh, blind tigers. It's a fact. So Mary York is praying for her son, staying up late all weekend, hoping and praying that he'll be okay and come home alive, and things are falling apart. The law's after him. He... he, he breaks the law, as you can imagine, since everything's falling apart. Uh, he enjoys his weekend, uh, jaunts up to the Blind Tigers, is not willing to give it up. But something happens. A neighbor girl catches his eye, Gracie Williams, but the only way, Gracie's a strong Christian, so is her family, and the only way Alvin can see Gracie is to go to church. So she goes, he goes to church to see Gracie, and something happens to him. The last week in 1914, the church down in the valley, which still stands, has a revival service. They bring in a foreigner to preach. The guy's from Indiana. His name is Reverend Russell. And Alvin says on the 1st of January, 1915, as the revival service week is winding up, that he hears the gospel, that he's a sinner going to hell, but the good news is Jesus can save him. And Alvin York says, it's like lightning hit my soul. Mm-hmm. And he goes up when there's an altar call, accepts the Lord, and his life completely turns around. Fantastic. Now, in the movie that some people might be familiar with, the Gary Cooper film, lightning does strike, right? Bends his rifle very dramatically, almost kills his his horse or his mule. And then I think from that moment, he staggers into the church, and they have this you know, fairly stirring uh, uh, conversion moment. Uh, that doesn't simplify everything for Alvin York at this point, right? He becomes a Christian. He's, he's wooing uh, his future wife. Uh, he's trying to, you know, uh, lead a good life. And then outside the hills of Tennessee, there's this thing going on overseas, this war that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the Tennessee valleys. Uh, but then America enters the war and war does come, uh, for the boys in Tennessee. Uh, Alvin York is drafted. Uh, and then a, another kind of struggle begins for him what was that struggle after york got saved he really immersed himself into christianity studied the bible and and, and so although he had barely a third grade education he, he just devoured the bible and tried to live by the precepts in there prayed attended church was active in ministry helping with the choir uh, he was the assistant pastor after a few months i mean it was really dramatic he said it was not easy turning away from from the drinking lifestyle because he said he enjoyed it and but every time he turned down the temptation he said it was easier so he's building his character muscle. And then two years and four months after his salvation, the United States enters a war, and he gets drafted into the Army. And he has a real hard struggle, as, as Christians have for 2,000 years, on whether somebody could serve in a military and kill for their country. Mm-hmm. And that issue hits him squarely in the face. 
And he, he just he knows and believes that God's going to deliver him from this because he believes it's outside of God's will for any Christian to kill. But God doesn't deliver him. He, he, he applies for exemption. The, army, the, the local board, the county board, the state board, they, they all say you're going. Right. Even the federal level says you're going. So with a lot of turmoil in his soul, he reports to Camp Gordon, Georgia. But he determines, uh, he, he's praying for guidance and wisdom, but he determines that when he's down there, he's going to be the best soldier he can be. Right. And so he stands out to his officers, and the officers want to promote him to corporal because he's a model soldier. He's never getting, getting in trouble. He's not going downtown like so many are and, and getting in trouble with the girls and, and alcohol, a struggle he had just two years before. But to make things even worse for him is that he's the best shot in the division. Right. And there's a lot of immigrants from Italy and from Eastern Europe and, and from the Mediterranean area in Greece that, that can't hit anything, not even the sky Alvin right. York is talking about. Right. And uh, so York is used to train up these guys, and it's, it's, they're like, we got to promote this guy. He's, he's a natural leader. He's talented. He's hardworking, hardest guy in the battalion. And they say, we're going to promote you. He's like, no, I don't even want to be in this army. And they're like, what? Right. You got, you've, you've got this, this incredible tension where, as you say, a few months earlier from that point, he's leading people in church in Bible study, and he's teaching them the precepts of the faith. Now he's being asked to teach people the precepts of war, right? His conflict isn't just, can I kill for my country? It's, I am now being told to teach other people how to kill for their country. Um, and that must have been an incredible tension for him. How did he, in the, in the movie, and I'll ask you in a little bit, Maybe uh, just to guide people as they, they see the movie, what are some of the differences between the old Gary Cooper film and, and the true story? Uh, but in the film, they, you know, I, I think for the sake of brevity, they have, uh, I think he's the major in York's outfit, sort of speaking in one ear about service to the country and, and duty to the nation. And in the other ear, you have his preacher back home saying service to God, duty to God. And, you know, there's this one dramatic moment where he's up on the, the cliffside with his hound dogs and he's got the voice, you know, God. And then in the other ear, country, God, country. <clears throat> How does he eventually reconcile that? It's not an easy thing. And so Alvin York has, he's uh, summoned to talk to his two commanding officers, company commanders, Captain Danforth, his battalion commanders, Major Buxton. Mm -hmm. And York is, and he's a private, and York is ordered to the, the officers' quarters. And obviously he feels very awkward and he, like he's going to be assaulted verbally right. somehow. Yeah, sure. And But Major Buxton, both Buxton and Danforth are strong Christians. And Buxton says, no, York, I'm here just to talk to you as a brother Christian, not as an officer or soldier. And York said, I was, he said, I was immediately put at ease. Right. And they just, he, York said, I'm putting it in his own words because we just talked about the old bible and so york would bring up scriptures that that he thought were against killing buxton and danforth would bring up verses that they believed were of course for serving your country and that right. you can kill for your country and uh york said there was no yelling or anything he, he said he felt the holy spirit there he, he felt like it was just a fun talk hmm. about a hard issue but they were at impasse no one is making any headway so finally captain danforth literally dramatically stood up and said york i got one more scripture for you out of ezekiel 33 it's it's the first seven verses in ezekiel 33 called the watchman on the wall basically god says i appoint my people his people as watchmen on the wall and if, if you don't do your job and, and warn my people of a pro approaching calamity it'll be as if you kill them it says you know their blood will be on your hands right. and york's <clears> like you know what? Okay, I can serve my country, but I'm not going to kill for it. That's right. But York asked for a pass, and they give him a 10-day furlough to go back home to pray on the mountainside that you mentioned. It's called the Yellow Doors, mm -hmm. a beautiful cliffside up in, in Palm Mall overlooking the Wolf Valley. You've been up there. And uh, he, he, uh, he spent some time in Palm Mall, mm -hmm. and he, uh, he's praying, and he gets a peace that surpasses all understanding from Philippians 4. And, and he, he says he feels that God tells him that he's going to come home and it'll be okay. Mm -hmm. 
And so with that, he reports back to duty at Camp Gordon says, I'm going with you guys. I don't understand how and why I'm not resolved on killing any Germans from my country, but I'm going to go and God's given me a peace that surpasses all understanding. He's just doing the next right thing as he is made to see the next right thing. He's going to take it one step at a time. Right. And that's how God is with all of us. God will reveal his plan only as we need it. It's very frustrating because we want to see God. <laughs> what's the end point? Right. And right. God's leading us down this road that we have to step out in faith. And York does step out in faith. Right. Who? A uh, hundred years ago, October 8th, 1918, he's in the forest. Uh, you mentioned already the Lost Battalion, uh, York's actions there. Uh, just quickly walk us through exactly what York did. Again, a lot of people probably are no longer familiar with this. So what happened on that day? What were the, the general details? Of the yeah, combat? the plan of attack was to kick off at 6 o'clock in the morning. As we saw earlier this week, yes, it's black out there. But the Germans are firing flares, and the Americans are shooting flares as well. So, I mean, it lights up temporarily, so you, you kind of get a feel for what you're facing. And then uh, there's supposed to be a 10-minute artillery barrage preceding the American attack with, with Alvin York in it. Mm -hmm. That and goes it, perfectly. That's right. <laughs> no plan survives first contact, right. at least in this case. And yep. so the artillery doesn't come. And the battalion commander, it's a, it's a different commander now. Buxton has been moved up to higher levels of responsibility. So this is uh, Major Tillman. And Tillman says we're going to attack with or without artillery. So at 10 minutes past 6 o'clock, they launch the attack into the forest. The Germans have a kill zone set up with four regiments waiting for them. And it's a slaughter. Right. And the Americans are trapped in the valley. And a lot of uh, their soldiers, single bloody stay in the history of that regiment. Even worse than their experiences in World War II at the Battle of the Bulge. It's, it's the Germans meant business. Right. And but 16 uh, soldiers and, and Alvin York were ordered to try to break through the German lines through a, a, a fold in the terrain. Providentially, they're able to because that late artillery barrage shows up just as the 17 Americans, including Alvin York, are moving underneath a bunch of German guns and the artillery, American artillery starts hitting the German positions. That's right. And we, we, we were standing right at the base of that. And you point out that had that barrage not taken off when it took off and, and pushed the Germans down for cover, there's no way. These 17 men would have gotten, you know, very far up that hill at all. That's right. Uh, so yeah, you, know, you could write up, write that up to whatever you want, but the, uh, the, the, uh, you the could, coincidence is pretty staggering. You couldn't be that lucky. Yeah, that's right. right time and right, right place. That's God's intervention. All right, so they get through. And the 17 Americans spend about an hour or so meandering behind German lines, very slowly trying to work their way back. And eventually they, they hit an old trench dug in the 1600s to, to mark a border between the King's Land, Louis XIV's land, and, and town land. And they go down a trench, they bump into two German uh, medics, sanitation soldiers who are filling up water containers. The, the two German medics run straight back to headquarters, alert their commander, Lieutenant Paul Fulmer, that the Americans have broken through. But, but they're being chased by the 17 Americans. The 17 Americans surprise 70 Germans, capture all these Germans behind enemy lines, 17 Americans, 70 Germans. And now it's time to push the Germans into a group to get out. The Germans are dragging their feet because there's a machine gun on the hill above, commanded by another German officer, Lieutenant Paul Lipp. And, of course, Paul Lipp sees there's trouble. He waves. Lieutenant Fulmer yells, Runter, get down. The Germans all fall to the meadow ground. The Americans, all 17, are standing in the open. Machine gun opens fire. Kill six, wounds three of the Americans. All hope seems to be lost. There's... York is, is trying to survey the ground and see what's going on, and he realizes he's the last non-commissioned officer, not dead or wounded. Mm -hmm. To make matters even more serious for him, his only friend in the Army, look, he's a conscientious objector, he's a Christian, he's not chasing the mademoiselles or the, or the ladies, and he's not hitting the wine, so he's an oddball, does not fit in. 
And his only friend in the army is another Christian, Corporal Murray Savage from upstate New York. And Murray Savage was one of the first killed. And New York is, just, is, is appalled by this, naturally. And he says, I got to stop the killing. And so w without rage or malice in his heart, and I'll explain why in a minute, he charges up the hill. He sees a German machine gun. He runs up the hill and starts picking off the German and the supporting infantry that are firing into the American throng and that had just killed his friend. And, it, right. and, and just to interrupt for a second, just to, to, to lay this out in people's minds, we were up at that spot and he was at the tip at the, or the bottom, I suppose, of a basically a V, right? And so his position was significant because he's able to simply fire down uh, either trench. Is that right? That's right. And so the Germans are, are pinned and he's just able to pick them off. Uh, then what happened? And in between shots, he's asking for the surrender. Right. He doesn't. That's why I say it's not rage. It's right. it's, it's it's not me surmising or right. superimposing my thoughts. Now there there are those who say that the the adnitudinal requirements of the just war tradition fight without hatred, fight without malice. You know, don't seek you know uh, to uh, cruelty for the sake of cruelty or punishing your enemies purely to hurt them. Some people say all oh, those adnitudinal requirements in the heat of combat are absolutely impossible to maintain. It's an absolute myth. Alvin York, in the midst of a combat action, which he's just seen his friend uh, pulverized. I mean, his, his friend was scattered, you described, That's across right. the ground. Uh, if anybody's in a rage, he ought to be in a rage. In the midst of this anger, he's able to call for the surrender of the people who've just killed his friend, suggesting, actually, that the attitudinal requirements of the just war tradition are absolutely possible. Not perfectly, not completely, not always, but they're possible. Uh, you you can fight your enemy with love, and and he does, and he calls for the surrender. None of the Germans surrender. So and, and obviously there's there's always detractors in America. We become a cynical, sarcastic society. We have to find the flaws and faults of our heroes, mm. or question facts that, that 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 shouldn't even be questioned because they're quantifiably proven. But that's that's what we've become. But York is asking for the surrender. The Germans, uh, the detractors will say, well, the Germans are ready to quit this war. No, they weren't. York killed all 19 in that position, and all of them refused to quit, and they had a chance to quit. Mm. So York uh, sees a group of reinforcements coming down the hill towards him underneath the command of the same German officer who commanded the machine gun. He, he lex left the position before York attacked to get reinforcements. And York's thinking, I need to get back down to my troops anyway and get out of here. So York runs down the hill. Another German officer sees him. And uh, this German officer is Lieutenant Fritz Endress. Fritz Endress orders a bayonet attack against York. And York, of course, realizes he's being chased. He pulls out his Colt 45 pistol and starts sh shooting the Germans from back to front. Hmm. The last to fall is Fritz Endress, just uh, six to ten feet away from Alvin York. And uh, in all of this, the whole time, the German officer who commands the valley had been a prisoner. He's laying in the meadow. His name is Paul Fomer. Fomer walks over and he offers to surrender the unit to Alvin York, all to save the life of his friend Fritz Endress, who's screaming in pain. Mm -hmm. the, la the German officer shot leading the bayonet attack. And so Fomer walks over, English? You know, Do you speak English? English? York's like, what? <laughs> and, he, and Fomer replies again, English. And York says, no, I'm American. <laughs> I'm American. And so Paul Fulmer, in perfect American English, he lived in Chicago before the war, says, good Lord, if you stop shooting, I'll make them surrender, trying to save the life of his friend. Mm. And so York points his forty five at, at Fulmer, says, okay, do it. And Fulmer blows on a whistle and yells a command, and the Paul Lipp and the other German reinforcements on the hill above surrender. Now we have 100 prisoners. Yeah. York pushes them into a group with the surviving Americans, 
and he doesn't know where he is. He asks Fulmer for advice on how to get out. Of course, Fulmer tells him to go the wrong direction. York goes, okay, I'll go the opposite way. And York uh, leads the men out. They bump into the the front line of the Germans and bags another 32 prisoners after some drama. And he walks out of the Argonne with 132. Fantastic. Uh, What was the significance of that combat action for the battle that day? What was the significance of the battle that day for the larger Moose Argonne campaign? And then what was the significance of that larger campaign for World War One? Yeah, so the Meuse Argonne, it, it's one of America's largest ever battles. It's one of our bloodiest ever battles. It included 1.2 million Americans and 600,000 French, so just shy of 2 million soldiers fighting in there. It was terrible. It was bloody 20,000 casualties a week. And it was important to American history. It shaped the army, and it shaped our world. And the Germans have been using the Argonne Forest as a fortress. It's, it's, just, it's been there since Noah's days. It's too rough to use, mm-hmm. but it's ideal for defense. Right. Okay, so the Germans had planned to use this as a defensive position to prolong the war, but Alvin York's action forced the Germans to retreat. And I have a report from one of the Germans, and they said uh, on the 9th of October, as now I'm going to insert this, as a result of York's action, on the 9th of October, the Germans say, we received the bad news to leave the Argonne, something we've considered a second home. Mm. That's right. And, it, and it, I, I can make the case that it helps shorten the war. Mm-hmm. Not bad for somebody who was once called a good-for-nothing <laughs> drunk from nowhere, Tennessee. Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, we touched on earlier that um, you know, from the reluctant warrior comes several generations of U.S. service members. Um, several of the York family members have served. Uh, you have served. Uh, when you look at York's story as a Christian in military services, there are residents. Have you yourself uh, had difficulty at points reconciling uh, faith in Christ and, and devotion to the Lord with uh, the work you do in uniform? Uh, for me, it's never been a struggle. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you try to do the right thing, and you'll have bosses, uh, leaders that will try to direct you in the wrong direction or to do something that's that's outside the bounds of, of just war theory or or doing the right thing. But that's even yeah. true in the civilian world. Sure. Uh, for me, it's never been an issue. Uh, I can understand how, how and why Christians could see from the scriptures why it could be a conflict. I got it. You know, how do you love your neighbor as yourself? I, I know the arguments, and... And it's been a problem going all, all the way back to the foundations of Christianity, where you know, could a Christian serve in a pagan army, right. the Roman army, right. you know, that has Medusa on it, you know, mm-hmm. on, on your helmet? And so it's a hard issue. Uh, it hasn't been for me. I started off the career, my career, on the Iron Curtain, and it was definitely good versus evil. Mm. I felt I felt very fulfilled on the Iron Curtain, and felt very terrible for the people across uh, under the, the thumb of atheistic communism. Right that I could see across the border and for those that were daring to cross being killed. I mean, it was awful. And when the Iron Curtain came down, it was truly a mission accomplished. No, that's right. Um, Gerald York mentioned uh, in a video interview we did up on site, and you could check out this video on the Providence Facebook page. Uh, But Gerald York mentioned, you, you had asked him the question, you know, what are the things that your grandfather would most like to have been remembered by? And some of the things that Gerald touched on, uh, was the idea that you know uh, Alvin York was proud of his going back to Tennessee and building schools to educate kids, uh, improving the roads, and you know just improving the social infrastructure in the Tennessee mountain communities. Uh, on the one hand, you've got that work. On the other hand, you've got the work of fighting sometimes. Uh, but as Alvin said, you know he did it to save lives. Uh, you've got these things that at at one level, if you just sort of quickly glanced over them, seem. Uh, if not opposed, at least different. 
But it seems to me that if, if you rightly understand the just war tradition, uh, which states that the end of war, the purpose of war is peace. And it's not just sort of a, an easy peace where certain people aren't being assaulted uh, because they're enjoying, you know, a lack of conflict. Peace is um, something approaching comprehensive welfare for all sorts of people. And it's always going to be imprecise. It's always going to be only approximate in this world until the end of time. Um, but just war work is peace work. And so it seems as you describe your own service, you know, trying to help people under the Iron Curtain, uh, that war fighting uh, can be peacemaking, that sometimes in our world is as awful as it is. You know, the only way to, uh, to the flourishing of good schools and to the ability of, of free men and women to enjoy those new roads uh, is to have stability and order. And sometimes stability and order needs to be um, created because aggressors refuse to allow it to, to be there. Uh, so I applaud, yeah, I, 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 I'm grateful, as you know, for your service, uh, for the service of Gerald York, for Alvin York. Uh, it's been extraordinary to walk around these, these hills over the last few days, uh, walking in the footsteps of, uh, of giants, people who did not set out to be uh, giants, to do giant-like things, uh, but who uh, emphasize that, that freedom is not free. And we were in the, the uh, Muzargan Cemetery yesterday, looking over uh, his friend's grave, Savage's grave, uh, in a sea of crosses and stars of David uh, and other memorial headstones and recognizing uh, the price that has been paid over and over and over again uh, by freedom-loving people uh, to push back sort of tyranny. Um, so thank you for all that. Thank you. That's been extraordinary. If people want to know more about York, obviously they should read your two books, one on the Argonne campaign, Thunder in the Argonne, your first book, Alvin York, a new biography. Um, we're Americans. We're going to go to the movies. Uh, we're going to grab the Gary Cooper film. Any thoughts on the Gary Cooper film? Good to see. Um, any, any cautions as they see that film compared to the real story? How does it stack up? Uh, the movie is my favorite. Yeah. It, it's definitely worth seeing. Fantastic. It's pretty darn mm -hmm. accurate. Yeah. The biggest concern that, that any of the Yorks had was uh, Alvin York's wife, Gracie, was concerned that, that they <laughs> were kissing kissing Alvin right. before they were married. You're going to set the record straight. She did, did that happen? No, she didn't kiss didn't him kiss until Alvin. the wedding day. But other than that, the movie's pretty darn right. That's fantastic. He, he doesn't have the big red mustache, though. Yeah, Gary right. Cooper didn't, didn't sport one of those as Alvin did. That's too bad. Okay, so check out the movie. Check out Doug Mastriano's books. Uh, Doug, as we sign off, any final words? So the thing that strikes me about York's story and so many others, it says in Revelations mm. twelve eleven that we overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So we defeat Satan's work on earth by, of course, Jesus. That makes sense. But then our testimony, right. we defeat Satan as well in, in conjunction with God. God chooses to use uh, failed, flawed, sinful people like you and me to change history. What I see from Alvin York is somebody who loved the Lord with all his heart, and God raised him up to change history. And 100 years later, we're still talking about him. I bet you in his wildest dreams, he never imagined this. Mm -hmm. But what is really striking about York and about each Christian's life is that what you do in life matters. God has a perfect plan for us. It, it does, 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 usually doesn't make sense in the moment. Right. But God has a perfect plan for each of us. And what you do in life echoes across the generations and into eternity. So I encourage the listeners out there, don't give up. Keep fighting the good fight, and you'll see God do marvelous things. Absolutely fantastic. What do we got on the uh, docket for today? Uh, we're going down to the Lost Battalion, and, and we're going to see where really it all began for Alvin York. Because the Lost Battalion was the reason why York attacked into the Argonne, and his life changed. 
and the war changed. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, for those of you who haven't already seen it, we've got a lot of this material up on the website, on the Facebook page. Uh, there are short videos from Doug Mastriano uh, explaining on location various points of uh, sort of our staff ride this week. Uh, there'll be more forthcoming. Enjoy this podcast and look out for future articles. Once again, just thank you for tuning in to the Foreign Policy Provcast. Douglas Mastriano, thank you for absolutely everything. This has been a great week, and uh, I look forward to more. Thank you, Mark. All right, God bless well. you. You too.